0: An Insider's take now on how Mr. Trump actually won. This is how politics is waged this day. These are the meme wars in action. And the president
1: has the most powerful platform for propaganda.
0: Facebook has come under fire for its role in last year's election. So is this really about marketing? Is that what political campaigns are about these days? Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast where we break down the online race for the White House in 2020. I'm Tara McGowan, founder and CEO of Acronym, and after a brief hiatus, we're bringing this pod back for the final weeks of what has been the longest, most unprecedented, unpredictable, and exhausting election of our lifetime. In this final sprint to Election Day, I'm bringing onto the pod some of the sharpest political strategists I know, many of who have been working tirelessly behind the scenes to defeat Donald Trump, and help Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win this November. As it turns out, every one of my guests in these final weeks is a woman who's running her own program, shop or show focused entirely on helping shore up votes for Democrats this cycle. For our first guest of the 2020 Sprint season, I'm thrilled to be joined right now by my friend, colleague and fellow Lady Pack founder, Adrian Shropshire. Adrian, thanks for joining me. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Um so Adrian, uh you are the founder and executive director of Black Pack, um which is uh one running one of the largest programs connecting exclusively with black voters in this election cycle. Um and we have been working together for a number of years now on the uh Super PAC side um, of elections. I want to talk a lot about Black Pack and the programs you're running, but um, I would be remiss if I did not start uh, with the most newsworthy uh, topic, which is the vice presidential debate we just watched with Senator Kamala Harris and and Vice President Mike Pence. The very first. Uh, Article I read at 6 a.m. this morning was Aaron Haynes' take in the 19th. And of course, you were the second person quoted. And I was so delighted because I knew I was going to be talking to you in a few hours. So I want to, I'd love to hear from you. What, how do you think Senator Harris did last night?
1: I, I thought she did, you know, remarkably well. I mean, I, you know, the thing about Senator Harris, and we all know this from um, how she shows up. Um, on the Senate floor um, and in committees, is she's you know remarkably prepared. Um, she's very clear. She presents as you know someone who will is waiting for you to give her one little sliver of daylight so she could take you out. And I think we saw that uh, last night. And she handled the, I mean, you could clearly see and feel her frustration, um, not just in the fact that Mike Pence couldn't shut up, um, you know, kept talking over her, but really talking over Susan Page, the moderator, in a way that was so offensive. Um, But you could also see uh, Senator Harris's frustration with the moderator, watching her allow Mike Pence to essentially disrespect both of them on the stage um, and not cut him off, you know, not, you know, she she clearly made attempts, you know, saying Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, but he just talked her down into utter silence. Um, And my kind of take, my takeaway from that really was, you know, as this, as the Trump-Pence disaster that is, you know, tries to by any means win back white women uh, and white women in the suburbs in particular, they just don't help themselves at all. Um, And we saw it in, you know, Trump's unhinged debate. Uh, We saw it last night with Mike Pence reminding every woman, regardless of race, what it means to be in a room with men who will not stop talking, use a lot of words to say a whole lot of nothing, but take up the space, suck up the air, and silence people who actually have something to say um and last night i think is a reminder uh to every woman and to and particularly to the women who uh they are trying to win over or win back um that they are those dudes (laughs) uh who you know they don't even try and they don't even try yeah but but anyway but, but senator harris i thought handled that well she you know there were times when i thought you know she she Could have, you know. It it reminds me of Joe Biden in his debate with Trump when he said, "Just shut up, man." Right? Kamala Harris could not have done that because this morning we would have heard. In addition to, you know, the things that we've seen from the right being called a bitch, right, uh, or say, saying she showed up as bitchy, right, um, uh, you know, saying that she's, you know, su- uh, suggesting that she's inarticulate, right, um, being really, apparently, being <laughs> apparently really challenged by the fact that uh, that she had a, had facial expressions, um, we would have heard more of that, right, and, and worse if she had said to Mike Pence, can you just shut up? Right. Okay which she was entitled yeah, to do. It's absolutely. Quite
0: and I think every woman, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, who was watching had to feel some connection with her about, about being talked over and interrupted and, and also under the pressure to, to not actually at, uh, not lose it, right? On a national stage. And and we can't ignore the historic nature. This was the first time Americans have ever seen a woman of color in a vice presidential debate in this country. And that is profound. and And she is beyond qualified for this role. And I just, every face expression she had, because I am someone who does not have a poker face either, <laughs> I just feel like she was, she was all of us, right? right. Just like, you know, trying to to keep it together and make sure that her answers came across. And honestly, I, I think that she had the most zingers, uh, I think, uh, in, in the debate. And unfortunately, the the fly took a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the energy and the stardom from it. I was almost embarrassed for Mike Pence.
1: <laughs> I was I know.
0: like, dude, you've got to...
1: Fly on your head, and you really need to get rid of it. But I think that they're really, you know, like if you're superstitious like I am, um, it really was a moment where I thought, "Oh, this what? This is <laughs> this means something because it's not leaving. Yeah, um, right. um, it is choosing to stay in your hair." And I've seen enough uh, B horror movies <laughs> to know that there's something lurking under the surface, and Kamala needs to run exactly.
0: And I'm definitely someone <laughs> as well who believes in science. And there have been uh, so many uh, dark and light signs in 2020. Um, I want to stay on uh, Senator Harris's candidacy for a little bit, because one of the things that I'm I'm most excited about, about the work uh, that we're both doing this election cycle is a program that we came together uh, to build with with two of our other uh, lady PAC colleagues, um, Melissa Williams at Emily's List's Independent Expenditure Program and Jenny Lawson at Planned Parenthood Votes. I'd love to hear a little bit, you know, we built this program together. Uh, I think you you and I were really adamant and enthusiastic about bringing uh, a group of women who are running some of the largest political programs in the country um, together to really, to really have Kamala's back um, uh, with, with political programs that really inform, educate, and, and inspire voters about Kamala Harris's candidacy and everything she brings to the ticket. Um, so I'd love to hear from your perspective what, what you think her candidacy means in this race and, and on the... Biden ticket generally?
1: Yeah. I, you know, the entire process has been, um, you know, a, a both historic, obviously, but, um, and, and when I mean the entire process, I mean the, the, even in the final days of the selection process, um, for, a, a vice president, um, what was clear to all of us, you know, from the time that Joe Biden made the announcement, was that it was going to be a woman. Um, what was clear to many of us in the final days is that it was going to be a black woman. There really was this, you know, sense of pride, real anxiety. Uh, around both what was happening during those, you know, fi- the final week or so, where all of the women were being attacked, whether it was um, Karen Bass or Susan Rice or Kamala Harris, um, all the women were being attacked. They were having to defend themselves in ways that that they should not have had to, and they were getting pitted against one another, right, as happens in our society. And so it was nerve wracking. At the same time that we knew that this incredibly historic thing was about to happen, um, you know, and the, the sort of upside of it is that all of them defended themselves in ways that could make um, each of us really proud. Um, and then the announcement of of, um, of Senator Harris was sort of this overwhelming, uh, you know, moment, I think, for for many of us. And we also knew that in the same way that she'd been attacked since her, her announcement, uh, the announcement of her presidential campaign that there would only be an intensification of those attacks both sexist and, and misogynistic attacks but but also racist attacks um and we have uh you know continued to see that with the the president this morning calling her a monster over and over again um from last night's debate I, you know just particularly th- ironic coming from <laughs> <laughs> coming from the actual monster right um yeah uh you know and there are ways in which we've seen um, tr- Trump directly and the campaign and the apparatus around it really use, you know, a number of tropes uh, to try to. Uh, you know, gin up in people's minds these images um, of Black people and of Black women. Um, You know, I was particularly and continue to be uh, particularly uh, disturbed by the use of the term disrespectful um, as as it relates to her because it's always a reference that he uses um, when he refers to her as being disrespectful because of the way that she interrogates people in committee. Um, And one, that's her job. Two, she's good at it. But the reference really is about how dare a black woman talk to white men in such a way, right? And so this idea that she's being disrespectful is about how she is disrespecting white men and that she's out of line. Um, and so it's those kinds of things that are deep in the psyche of America um that, Uh, they are trying to pull out, right, as they have pulled out every, you know, sort of despicable aspect um, of our nation's history that they're trying to do in this moment as well, and so obviously it was important for us then, um, and and it was why I was um, both excited, but also, you know, just felt really necessary for us all to come together in this moment, um, partly because we all know each other and have all worked with each other for a long time, Um, but it just made sense, right, given who we are, who our organizations are, the, the, the scale of voters that we're all going to be contacting um, to, to think about a program together that would allow us to um, both defend um, Senator Harris, um, but also talk to voters about what this moment means, and and not just the the you know the kind of history, uh, uh, the historical nature of her presence on this ticket, um, but also the important role that she can play as a transition candidate, and that's how Joe Biden has talked about himself as well. But really transitioning into the America that we need to be, um, and out of the mess that we currently find ourselves in, and it's important for us to have that conversation with the voters that we're all talking to about how this is a bridge to the place that we want to get to.
0: Absolutely. That is so, so well said. And it's so important. And before we knew that it was Senator Harris to your earlier point, and we knew it was going to be a woman, we just knew that this was going to be an easy playbook um, to take down a woman, especially um, in a race where Trump hasn't been able to make an attack stick on Biden um, and has effectively thankfully been on the defense since he he ha- failed to even acknowledge the severity of the pandemic in the spring and has uh, done nothing but made it continually worse since and so we we knew that there would be tried and true att- attacks and this happens on all sides with women right and women of all races but it's so much worse for women of color you said it so well about how it's so deep in the american psyche that it is easy to convince even Other women uh, that that a woman candidate or public official is not qualified or not to be trusted. And yet at the same time, we are in a position to be able to to turn the page and really, I think, accelerate um, the role that women play. And, And Kamala Harris is at the forefront of that. And frankly, I think that she is the greatest asset the Biden campaign has and needs. Um, because of uh, what I lose the most sleep over that I I want to talk to you about, which is um, enthusiasm in this election. And I think there is no question there is enthusiasm in this election and outrage against Trump and his administration. But I want to talk a little bit about 2016, uh, as triggering as that is. So trigger warning for folks listening. Uh, Adrian and I were both uh, <laughs> running uh, different super PAC programs then too, and and coordinating with each other. And I can't remember some of our specific conversations, but I remember general conversations you and I had in 2016 about feelings we had about things that were being missed or not taken seriously by, by Democrats, by, by groups, by funders, by the campaign. I want to find a way to talk about this. And this is not about pointing fingers or calling anyone out, but there, there is, we missed a lot of things in 2016. Democrats missed a lot of things when it came to taking certain voters for granted and, and focusing too much on other types of voters, mainly older white voters. And something that has been surprising and frustrating to me in this cycle in 2020 is that I've seen that happen again. And it's almost worse because the polls are even better. And we've had four years of Trump in office. And so it's almost as though people are forgetting how close this can be and how critical people of color and women voters are. They are the most critical voters we have to have a democratic victory. So talk to me about Black voters in this election, the role they play, the role they played in the primary and frankly, what you've been seeing since 2016 or even earlier in terms of of their engagement and 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 how how Democrats are are respecting and reaching out to black voters.
1: You know, what I what I would say is that um, the reflections on 2016, I feel like are. Not only triggering, (laughs) but, um, you know, for a long time, I just swore it off, right? Like, we're not, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Like, we're here now. Let's, Let's move forward. And part of the reason is because I don't think that we actually missed this stuff in 2016. We saw it and we knew it was there and no one did anything. And so we knew there was an enthusiasm problem and not, not, not just black Pack, I mean the we in general um, we knew there was an enthusiasm problem. Um, we knew there was a challenge with younger black voters. We knew there was a problem with with uh, progressive black voters which is is related to you know uh, age but not exclusively, uh, and and there was no counter for it, right? Um, there was this question about, hey, where are all these Facebook posts coming from? Like, who who are all these radical Black groups that suddenly exist in my Facebook feed? But no one did anything about it. Well, we didn't miss it. It was all in front of us, and there were even conversations about it. And I know you and I have talked before about you know, and I, about our, our field program in 2016. And, you know, at this point in 2016, um, Clinton's numbers were low with the black voters we were talking to. They were way below where they needed to be. And I would get the reports from our, our teams every night and I would go through the numbers and I would say, she cannot win with these numbers. In my mind, I thought, well, we still got, we still have more time. Right. We will increase, uh, you know, the our volume in terms of who we're talking to. We will adjust our messages. Right. So, so that people are very clear on what's at stake and the stark differences. We will drill down on the voters who seem to be most um, in need of persuasion. But the problem is that it was already baked at that point. Right. Um, that we didn't we had we ran out of room. Uh, before we got to this point in, in the cycle. Um, and it's because of all of the sort of targeted propaganda um, and amplification of that propaganda by people who should have known better um, that it was just simply burned in um, and there and there wasn't a way out for us. Um, fast forward four years and we are seeing um, some similar things, obviously. Um, and that is, you know, this sort of not just foreign... Actors um, engaged in manipulation, um, but the Trump campaign itself and the whatever eight <laughs> chan world of sludge um, that's out there targeting black voters, trying to you know uh, gin up, you know, and animate uh, folks around issues that are in fact issues that the Democratic Party uh, has not done enough on. Right, and I think when black voters say, you know, I don't know if my vote Counts or uh, when when black voters say the Democratic Party takes my vote for granted, um, it isn't like there isn't truth and fact in that, um, and so I think that that that's why those are easy points to exploit. But I do think that there is, um, you know, the 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 good news is that. You know, as shocking as it w- was for all of us in the in during the Democratic primary to suddenly wake up and realize that we were having a conversation about structural racism in America, uh, should 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 suggest to us the, how the the leap that we have made um, from simply ignoring it right, which is partly what we saw in, in 2016, when um, younger Black voters, and I don't even say younger Black voters, Black voters in general, were saying, we need to talk about the systemic nature of the challenges that we face in our country. Um, and it was sort of, a, you know, a, a, a pushing that to the side. Um, and in this year, um, in after, you know, Uh, four years of Black voters showing up um, and, you know, helping to be part of the coalition that uh, has been responsible for every Democratic victory since 2016, the kinds of issues that that Black communities have raised around, you know, sy- systemic racism, whether it's in our police force, whether it's in criminal justice, whether it's in jobs, whether it's in health, um, forcing those issues into the national debate, and the Democratic candidates picking up on that for uh, during the primary, picking up on that and saying, "Oh, right, I need to be able to address this. Right, I need to talk. To, I need to have a platform um, that gets at." Uh, the root causes of uh, inequality uh, in our country. We saw that obviously most directly with Senator um uh, Warren, um, but obviously with uh, Senator Harris, Secretary Castro, et cetera, right? All sort of building out uh, uh, Senator Booker, right? Sort of all and Joe Biden, all sort of building out um, a set of policies, uh, solutions that address the question of systemic and, and structural racism. And so we've moved a long way, and I think that that is resonating with folks. Um, but I will say that we are still seeing some lag. Um, even in this moment, um, and um, you know, and we, that is something that I think all of us, including the campaign um, and the party, um, needs to take very seriously in in the closing days um, of this campaign, because it isn't just about this campaign. Obviously, um, it is about how we uh, build and project uh, political power um, going forward, um, and how we make sure that Black communities um, feel like they're getting something. Um, concrete and material out of their participation. And that don't just mean, you know, sort of policy talk, right? But actual elected officials governing and delivering on the kinds of change um, that people need to have in their lives in order to feel like they are um, actively included and actively being considered and actively a part of our democracy.
0: That is such an excellent point in, in terms of the the power that has been built in this uh, in this incredible moment, with issues that have been around for a very long time that have not made it into the national conversation, mm-hmm. um, and in certain ways, uh, it's it almost feels like one of those moments of, of of hitting rock bottom with this president and this administration, and then the incredibly public and viral unjust killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, and and forcing that into the conversation that should have been part of the conversation the entire time. But that actually, you just gave me, um, a great feeling of hope that I don't wake up with a lot in terms of the role. And, and I think about this a lot with um, with voters under 40. I did not want to say like young, young voters, but millennials and Gen Z, the, the issues they care about, the conversations they're having are very different than older generations. Um, and yet there is still, I think, an imbalance in terms of resources to reach Voters under 40 who are more diverse, they are more progressive, they are more outspoken on systemic issues and racism and sexism and challenges. And it really is uh, forcing a very different conversation and forcing a much, much more stark contrast between the parties in terms of where the Republican party has really decided to put itself with Trump as the head of that party um, talk to me a little bit about the work that you're doing at black pack and what you're hearing um you know and seeing in your research and your programs you guys are, are are in the field in a number of states you're advertising to black voters um what is what is the feeling or sentiment and where and why do you think there there is some lag right now mm-hmm. So in terms um, of enthusiasm, I should say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I so I think that there's this common mistake that gets made all the time. And so in in 2017 in Virginia, when we were working on the governor's race um, and Charlottesville happened, um, there was this sense among the kind of uh, political ecosystem, the sort of democratic ecosystem that black voters are going to be really pissed now. Right. Um, and we're going to see record numbers because they're going to be so angry about what happened in Charlottesville. Um, and my take was, you know, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> right. I, like maybe, but also it could be completely demoralizing and demobilizing. Right. And so before we start uh, uh, making assumptions about what black people think and what the implications are for uh, racial violence targeted at black people, what that, you know, how that's going to uh, cause black people to act, we probably should talk to black people <laughs> and find out. Uh, exactly what the impact is and what they see as the appropriate response um, from the community. Um, And so I feel a little bit like that now too. The pandemic, you know, sort of two issues defining um, what is happening in the country right now and therefore what is happening, you know, the the issues that are defining this election. Um, and, And the pandemic has surfaced Um, all of the issues that contribute to inequality in our country. Uh, And so we see the economic devastation in in Black communities and other communities of color, not just the loss of jobs, right? Not just the fact that whole economies, um, whole industries have sort of disappeared. Before our eyes, if you had a job and if you were working in the gig economy, you didn't have work. Right. And for some families, uh, you know, we we reached out to um, our members um, in the early stages of the pandemic. And when the economic um, collapse was was clearly affecting people to ask them, like, what's happening with you right now and how are you feeling? And we got back a number of responses. One that stood out for me was a woman um, who's a home care worker in Philadelphia. And um, she said, you know, I am I'm fine because I, you know, I have my client and I haven't lost income. But I have to leave my house every day. And I don't necessarily know who's in and out of my client's house. And also the rest of my family, someone is a Lyft driver, right? Um, someone, you know, sort of naming off, um, the, the jobs that people have in terms of the gig economy. And her, her point was, you know, in other, uh, crises, um, our family, someone who could be relied upon, right, or a set of people we could rely on to make sure that other people got through. Um, but in this moment, no one has a job. And it's just me um, going to work with in unsafe conditions. And so, you know, that kind of is the, the job part, part of it is, obvious, is clear, right? People lost their jobs, people lost hours. Um, but the other side of it is the kind of wealth the loss of wealth, right? And when we talk about the way in which Black businesses were hit, you know, almost half of Black businesses will not come back. They are gone because of the ineptitude of this administration in handling the coronavirus itself, but also the way in which um, the support and resources for small businesses um, were not handled because the resources didn't go to small businesses. (laughs) They went to everyone else, right? Um, Right. And so that kind of, when we think about the Great Recession, um, you know, Black people lost wealth through their homes, right? They lost their homes. Um, And now the Black community is losing wealth through its businesses. Um, This is devastating for Black communities. I say that because we didn't get to that point by happenstance, right? There were policies that created that kind of um, inequality and that kind of over-reliance of Black communities on only a few sources of of, of wealth. So the economic Impacts are devastating for Black communities. And obviously, the health impacts are devastating as well in terms of the the, uh, disproportionate number of deaths, the disproportionate number of cases, all of that tied to how uh, unequal our healthcare system is. Um, So, the pandemic has been a real lesson for people. And then you have, obviously, uh, racism, um, and in particular, the way that racism shows up on our police force, um, the ways in which Black people are targeted and summarily executed in the street or in their beds. And the nation um you know, I feel like for the first time suddenly went oh, right, as a whole went oh right <laughs> this is this is actually real it's it's also just horrifying for black people, right um, having to watch videos over and over again, having to you know for not for for adults and um our our you know our grandparents generation or our parents' generation who've seen this for a long time, but also for people's children right who whose lives have been defined um by these kinds of killings, right? Um, I have teenagers, um, their whole life almost has been spent from Trayvon Martin to Mike Brown, right, to George Floyd, right, to Breonna Taylor, growing up in the middle of, uh, you know, a, a, a country that seems to uh, not care about Black lives. Um, and they've been politicized by that. Um, when we're looking at how you know the conversations that need to be had right now with folks and mobilizing them to vote there is a part of the work that is simply being done for us um, because things are so bad Um, and people recognize that the source um for, for a lot of this the source of the misery in the black community is actually is Donald Trump himself and his administration, right? Um, So people are clear about the the direct line um, of all that has gone wrong in the last four years. No one is saying I'm better off than I was, right? Um, The direct line is to Donald Trump. Um, But people also want to know Uh, what are you gonna do about it, right? Um, And that's the part where we have to have something to hold onto and unfortunately, fortunately, um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have given us some things to be able to say to people like this is how it could be. Uh, But we have to be able to um, genuinely say to people um, that there is something on the other side and without making it seem like, hey, you know, like there's a white savior who's come to town and his name is Joe Biden, right? there is this, this way in which you know people reject that and we're not trying to we're not trying to oversell. Right, like Joe Biden's gonna get into office and he's gonna fix everything and everything's gonna be great because we know that that's not true. We are in a deep, deep hole, um, and it's gonna take a lot to, to get out of. But I do think that it's important that we uh, bring people to the point of understanding that we elect people to office to be allies to our communities, um, to work with our communities to solve problems, and not to be the saviors or the or the problem solvers themselves um, and I think that that is our that has been our approach. Um, like everything is not going to change on this um, on election day. it didn't change on the day that Obama got elected twice. Right. Um, You know, again, a lot of these problems did not start with Donald Trump. They've been here. But we have to we have to move our communities and not just the black community, but all of our communities into uh, an understanding um, that our our work is not done on Election Day, um, that our work begins on Election Day um, and the, the fight and the struggle to make sure that we actually see implementation of the kinds of systemic change or the the steps, right, to getting to systemic change—that uh, all starts the day after the election, um, and we have to make sure that people understand that, that they stay engaged, um, and 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 I think that that's something that that is a hope, right, that people can look forward to, um, that we that we we you know live to fight another day, right, that we uh, that we create an opportunity for ourselves, and I think that Black communities understand that really well, that we have spent our entire time in this country, creating opportunity for ourselves. Um, you know, there's this saying about, you know, making a way out of no way. And that is what we do. But we need, a, we need an opening. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris present that opening for Black communities to move forward. And that's the conversation that we're having with people right now.
0: Absolutely. It's so important. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the work of power building and, and, and building on progress. And it's, it takes time and it takes commitment and energy. And I'm so grateful for the work you and your team are doing on this and continue, will continue to do long beyond the election. Part of um, your, uh, your mission statement at Black Pack has a similarity to ours at acronym, which involves building long lasting Political infrastructure. And at Acronym, we're focused more tactically on how do we, how do we build a more modern playbook and digital infrastructure and communications infrastructure that meets the moment in a, in, in a, in a digital uh, media ecosystem we live in where misinformation is rampant, et cetera. But, but the, the infrastructure piece, it's such an unsexy word, but I loved when I saw that in yours that I have it in front of me that it's I it, Black Box mission is committed to long term sustained engagement with Black voters by building lasting political infrastructure and holding public officials accountable to a policy agenda that defends Black Americans' rights, promotes dignity, and ends white supremacy. And this is what you were just talking about, is building lasting political infrastructure. And that is hard, and it requires resources, and it requires human capacity and commitment and tireless work. And it it's frustrating because infrastructure is hard it's hard to build and you need long term commitments and so much of this work is about short term commitments and short term resourcing and short term gains and so i wanted to hear and and also you know we we the minority as women in most of these rooms as as political operatives and strategists but you are often in many of these rooms the only woman of color um and i'm sure that that is an annoying and exhausting question to get defer to you and if you even want to speak to that, what that means but It's this this stuff is hard no matter what. I'm curious from your perspective how if if that is changing in this political moment we're in and cultural moment we're in in this country in terms of of convincing people of what it's going to take over a long period of time to get the America we want um, from from the perspective of the work you do day to day.
1: Yeah I mean so in many ways this is it is a, it is a failure of our party system that there is such a myopic view on what politics is um, and what democracy means. Um, And so we've sort of completely narrowed down the concept of politics and elections, or or politics and democracy, to the singular point of elections. And the Democratic Party, its role is to elect Democrats. We actually need parties that have, or a party that has a a much more expansive uh, view um, of its role uh, in, you know, maintaining and expanding our democracy. And so, when you have that sort of myopic view um, of democracy and of politics, it also drives donors and their investments. And, or their investment strategies right and so i think that's part that is a big part of the the challenge there is a disconnect in, in my perspective and you know I've, when I've done this for, for a long time from for many different angles right both as uh, a community organizer right as as a strategist as a donor advisor as a, you know i ran collaborative funds to sort of um, directly invest in the the, the political capacity of, of organizations of color um, and there's just a real disconnect um, between um, those who, uh, at what in whatever way or whatever level, you know, say that they're seeking social change, right, and and progress, however that gets defined. So whether that's political donors or it's philanthropy, um, there isn't a seamless understanding <laughs> about what that means, um, and so you know, on the philanthropic side, as they're investing in, you know, the voters that we're talking about here today or investing in the organizations that that engage them. Um, They really are investing in some of the longer term stuff, right? Investing in issues and advancing issues, um, investing in community organizing, creating vehicles for people, everyday regular people to be able to participate um, in our democracy. Um, And for a long time, not so much the sort of political side, because it was partisan. Right, um, which doesn't have to be partisan, and then on the other side you have this, these, you know, these hard dollars or these uh, political donors who are just trying to get people elected, right? Like we actually can't advance as a as a progressive movement um, or as as democrats if those two things aren't joined in some way, right? Because the entire um, I- I- endeavor, right, ought to be both about expanding our democracy thinking about how we're putting forward policies that you know give people greater opportunity and greater hope and electing those people who are actually going to expand our democracy and put forward policy that give people more opportunity and hope. That disconnect shows up in the ways that, that you just talked about, which is a focus on whatever voter you think is gonna get you over the line, right? Um, in investing in whatever super PAC you think is gonna you know, reach those voters, right? Um, uh, in investment in leaders, right? Which are, well, who are the leaders who can speak to those voters? And um, and while that sometimes looks like people of color um, and, and women, that stuff is usually the kids' table. right um after we address this stuff over here in real you know meaningful and and ways then we'll get to that other stuff that when we understand not just who our country is right now but who our country will be the idea that you that we could continue to to um, under resource right create this asymmetric uh, you know playing field um, uh, with both organizations and the people who they seek to uh, to engage um, you know we're just we're, we're, we're not headed for the kind of uh, uh, future uh, that we think we're headed for um, and so you know I to your point yes I am often the only a uh, uh, black woman in the room, I'm often the only black person <laughs> right in the room. Uh, there may be other people of color, but they are not black and so and that is a that is a reflection of um, who believes that they should be making decisions for communities of color and for uh, uh, voters in general um, in this country on our side. So there is you know when we talk about bias and we talk about implicit bias, et cetera all that exists um in progressive spaces um, and so there is a lot of work um, to be done and fortunately um, or I feel fortunate to be able to sit in those spaces to both to redirect right resources um, to redirect people's thinking about what what we need to be doing and how we need to be doing it but also creating um space and opportunity for other people so I always talk about how you know five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, if you walked into uh, a room that was, you know, C4s or PACs, there were no people of color and women. Um, And when I walk into those rooms now, um, there is a lot of women and there's a lot of black women, um, more so than there was. Um, you know, have we reached parity in some way? No, um, but there, we have come a long way, and some of that is because um, women of color and black women in particular has, has have just said, "I'm taking up the space." Like there's too much at stake, and we've seen way too much happening, and so I'm just going to do it. And so we see black women running political organizations now in a way that we did not see three, five. Mm-hmm. Definitely, ten years ago, we can we can look to that um, as progress, um, and not just you know. I think um, from from my perspective, um, the sort of our ability to continue to expand who's sitting at these decision making tables and who is influencing the, the decision making tables is just incredibly important, both for our movement, but also um, for our for our democracy, obviously.
0: It's necessary. It's necessary. And um, I know uh, we're at time, but Adrian, I am so honored to get to partner with you and work with you and know you, you expand and redirect my thinking all the time. You're one of the smartest strategists I know. So, and I know this was your first podcast, I think. So I'm so honored uh, that you took the time um, and, and just really grateful um, for all of the work that you're doing and, uh, and want you in every room uh, that I get to be in and, and many, many, many more that we we can we can change how this works and i hope um i hope that we we do that in this election and after because uh, we can build those centers of power i believe that more now than than ever so yeah
1: thank you Tara. thank
0: you <laughs> thank for everything adrian um and i will uh you know see you at our next meeting I know, I,
1: tomorrow maybe even
0: That's all we have for this week. If you want to take a deeper dive into the state of digital politics, and if you're not already a subscriber to our weekly newsletter, also called For What It's Worth, you can sign up at anotheracronym.org forward slash FWIW.